Safety was all the word on Wall Street today as we saw bond yields hit 4.9% on the 10-year treasury and stocks sold off. A big sell-off, over 300 points down on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. What's next? We really don't know. There's so much uncertainty and everybody knows about it. But welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell. We're here to answer everything for you. I am your trader, Todd Schoenberger, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, Tobin Smith, out in sunny and somewhat warm Scottsdale, yeah, somewhat Arizona. Warm. Well, people are still playing golf, so uh, that's that's all I know. Yeah. But we have a very special guest with us today. We have a Wall Street legend, Charles Lieberman. He is the CIO and managing partner of Advisors Capital Management. Chuck, welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell. Thank you, Todd. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, I got it. We're just going to let's start off with the big news of the day. President Biden, he went to Israel. Uh, they, they, they had to cancel. I, I know the King of Jordan was supposed to meet with them, but that that's not going to happen. Um, Biden's doing, I guess what, what we really want him to be as a leader out there. And he is, he's doing what he needs to do. Um, but there's so much unrest in the Middle East right now. And you had a terrific piece. I read a couple of your articles this afternoon, and I saw one that's on the advisorscapital.com site that talks about, what this war that's happening between Israel and Hamas and the economic downfall that could actually be triggered from this, particularly since so much natural gas is exported off of those shores. Chuck, what do you think? I mean, because this could have dire consequences, really, not just worldwide, but clearly for the U.S. markets. But I mean, is this something that's just a knee-jerk reaction or is it something we need to be cautionary about? It's more of a knee-jerk reaction at this point. It has the potential to uh, uh, blow up into something a lot more serious. Uh, but you know, so, uh, there's no production of natural gas in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, there is offshore Israel, and uh, that could uh, be, be disrupted. In fact, it is going to be disruptive because they've shut down those platforms. But Israel is not yet a huge supplier of natural gas to the Western world. They're a bit of a supplier to Europe through Egypt. They ship natural gas to Egypt, and then it gets liquefied and sent to Europe. Uh, but the amounts involved are relatively small. The real risk is if uh, the, the conflict blows up much more and uh, uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon gets involved on behalf of Hamas. And then there's the risk that Iran could get involved. That's the first real risk. And I don't see Iran doing that. So I don't think this uh, becomes significantly worse in terms of, of the economics of it. Yeah, it's hard to check. It. I mean, it's hard to game plan this one. I mm. I remember I was part of an IPO in, uh, oh God, it was it 2005, 2006. We're all, we're all ready to go. We're, we're going. And then Lebanon invaded Israel. Uh, and, or Israel invaded Lebanon to resort. You know, the Middle East has always, from a stock market standpoint, been benign until it's not. Uh, right. But what makes you so sure that uh, Iran, you know, is, uh, I mean, first off, Wall Street Journal reported that uh, that you know, Iranian officials were with the uh, Hezbollah and the Hamas group, you know, planning this thing. Obviously, the United States has communication detection equipment that as heard those phone calls, heard the, the you know, the saw the wires, like yada, yada. I, I'm not personally, I'm not so sure that knowing my friends in the Israeli uh, Air Force, that th th there's a point of which they would go after Iran. Am I just overdoing it? No, uh, I would. I think Israel would welcome the opportunity to take out the nuclear facilities that are being Absolutely. built in Iran. And that's precisely why I think Iran will not become directly involved 
because that would open the door to exactly that possibility. I think Iran will continue to work behind the scenes. They'll push their proxies. That's what Hamas is. Uh, and they could push Hezbollah into, into the conflict as well. Hezbollah does not really want to enter the conflict from what I read, from what I understand. Uh, they know they'll get decimated, but Israel doesn't want them involved either because Hezbollah is a very powerful military force. And so it's really going to be damaging to Israel. So uh, the good news is that neither of them is looking for an opportunity to go to war with each other. Uh, and Iran, I think, is likely to stay out. But, you know, one of the natures of war is that things uh, play out in unexpected ways. And this certainly has that capacity. Yeah. What is it? What do you think it, it that means in terms of, of U.S. Treasury bond yields? I mean, I saw some interesting speculation today that, uh, I mean, I've been calling for the, the five and a quarter percent uh, 10 years, just purely based on supply and demand. Um, but then, of course, you know, when we have a uh, uh, a war going on. The rest of safety is buy gold and buy ten-year treasuries. So I, that's where I'm really confused. Gold has been going up, uh, but but bonds. You know, we it seems like we can't sell two hundred billion dollars worth of bonds every week and have just everybody rush in and, and bid at par. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm sympathetic to that view. The way I think of it is that uh, things like a war or uh, uh, some sort of uh, turmoil, some sort of uh, catastrophe somewhere, uh, that sets off a flight to quality. But the fundamentals deserve a higher level of uh, treasury yields. Uh, go back to where interest rates are, and they need to float relative to inflation. Yeah. And so in, if inflation is, in, is currently in the ballpark of three, three and a half percent, then 10-year treasuries below five does not make fundamental sense to me. It's it's artificially low. It reflects the fact that the world is still a horrible place. And so money looking for safety goes into treasuries. So I think those yields are still artificially low. I think there's also a mental adjustment process. People became accustomed to interest rates at zero levels or really low levels. Really and nice, wasn't it, Chuck? It made our jobs a lot easier. Yeah, it, was, it made it very easy to borrow money uh, for as long as the cows come home at really zero rates. It was great. Uh, but that's not uh, fundamental. That's not stable. It's not uh, an equilibrium. And we're working our way back towards an equilibrium. Uh, wow. You and I are probably old enough to remember when interest rates were a lot higher and it was normal. Hey, I, How high Chuck, I started at Kidder selling uh, bond funds to pensions. And I still remember you know, standing up to one of the pension funds saying, Listen, you idiots, if you don't buy my 14% 10-year uh, bond, which if you do the reverse math, as it keeps going down, you're going to earn more in the bond market than you ever made in that stupid stock market. And they just wanted to throw me out on my ass. Right. <laughs> Chuck, how, how high do you see the 10-year yield going? I think it belongs somewhere between five and a half and six. Uh, but that's a judgment based upon where I'm guessing inflation comes in. The more inflation comes down, the lower the peak in interest rates. And it, a lot of this is still to be determined because you have fiscal policy that's still very expansionary. You have monetary policy that is that needs to raise interest rates, but doesn't want to raise them so much that we push the economy into recession. So there are a lot of balancing acts here, and yeah. we don't yet know how much the economy will respond to the rise in rates that we've already seen. 
so far, the labor market is still pretty tight. And so I don't see enough of a slowdown in the underlying inflation pressures to enable inflation to come down anywhere close to the Fed's 2% target. But time may help Where do you stand on the the argument that I've been making a little bit here, which is simply that if, you know, it's like if then question, if uh, inflation was negative basically after, uh, or or rates were negative, but also inflation was below 2% for all those years because of the industrialization of China and the exporting of, uh, you know, high priced labor, et cetera. If that's reversed, which it certainly is, then how could 2% be the target in a world where shipments from China are down 84% year over year in containers where costs, where labor costs, I feel like the 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 uh, late seventies a little bit with labor unions actually having you know price pricing power. Right. Isn't the world a different enough that it's it, it's just insane to come up with this two percent malarkey inflation rate as if everything was just hunky dory? Well, that represents the Fed's objective. It's the policy objective, and if that's the objective, then one of the things you've got to get is labor costs growing no more than about. Yeah. Three, three and a half percent, because that difference will be made up by productivity. And then you can get inflation down to 2% on a sustained basis. And there's nothing theoretically wrong or impractical or certainly not infeasible to accomplish that. But you've got to have all of the other stuff happen, meaning you've got to get the labor market to be loose enough that wage inflation is not in the four or 5% area. Because there's no way we can offset that enough with productivity to keep inflation uh, down to two percent. That won't happen. Yeah, I, 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 when you look at the at just the increase in labor costs, the other thing we learned about labor costs is they never go backwards. Once you've gotten to the point, unless you have a, a you know a, a economic crushing uh, Federal Reserve interest rate that that truly does wipe out three or four million jobs, but we still have. 3.2 million more jobs available than we have people in the workforce. That doesn't change with a 1%. And and, and the, the Federal Reserve has not shown the stones like, uh, you know, our personal friend Paul Volcker at the time. Right. And if you can't vocalize the economy, then to me, this is just, it's, 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 it's you're just changing excuses every month for why inflation is not coming well, down. When I just read the math and the math says it's not. Right. And that's exactly why the Fed's line about higher for longer is compelling, right? The Fed does not want to push the economy into recession. So they won't create, at least not intentionally, the kind of economic conditions that would cause the unemployment rate to go up sharply and therefore inflation to come down sharply. They're trying to ease their way to it. And that means that it'll take a while. They may have to raise rates multiple times more. That wouldn't shock me in the slightest. And in the meantime, they keep on hoping they've done enough so that inflation pressures will continue to ease up. But until you see the unemployment rate rise more meaningfully, the prospects for that are pretty minimal. So I'm with you. I think higher for longer is the right way to think about it. And all of the investment consequences flow from that. Well, so, the final I, question I, for me, Todd, then yeah. if that's the... If that's the case, where they they're not going to take it high enough to s- slow down, then doesn't that change? I'd be like to get into how you're investing in this uh, space because I can tell you right now, <laughs> this is my old my old voice. 
in the old days, okay, you know, yields that you got, on dividends that you got made up a, a shocking amount of the uh, return on the stock market for many, many years. Yeah. And if we're sort of going back to normal, then I can tell you in our portfolios, we're 30% in getting my five and a quarter percent money market account with no risk. We're at about 11% dividend with uh, dividends that come from, you know, small sectors of the world, like oil tankers right now, like LPG tankers, et cetera, where there's real tight markets and they've changed how they do business. And so now instead of buying a new ship every year, or 10 of them, they're now selling 10 of them and they're paying dividends and buying stock back. I, I think the next 12, 14 months, I'm, I'm assuming that I'm, most of my gain, if, if not all, is going to come from more dividends and, you know, no risk yield. How about you? Well, I run one of our portfolios, one of our strategies called income with growth. And the primary objective is income. Growth of the income is the second objective to keep up with inflation. And so 80%, 85% of that portfolio is in equities that produce high yield. And one of the nice things about that part of the portfolio is I'm very sensitive to inflation. So I want to invest in parts of the economy that benefit from inflation. So I'm into oil and gas pipelines. Sure, I'm into, I love uh, into business development companies. I'm into real estate investment trusts that offer good yields that will benefit from higher inflation or high interest rates. So there are a lot of ways to play it. And that's the way I'm playing it as well. Uh, that portfolio, by the way, these days is generating between six and a half and 7% gross before management fees. Yeah. So it's a pretty attractive yield. And it's also got some upside because these companies last year, about 70% of the holdings in the portfolio increased their payouts. Yeah. And that's what you want in, a, in an inflationary environment. And any favorite names you'd care to share? Sure. Um, one of my favorites is a company called Energy Transfer. It's I was new... just going to say Energy Transfer. You look to me like you're an Energy Transfer guy. <laughs> yeah. It's it's one of the cheapest pipelines out there, a tremendous runway ahead of them. Uh, because of government policy, it's tough for them to spend their profit, their cash flow in reinvestment. So they really have very little choice but to use it in, in other ways. Uh, they've already paid down a fair amount of debt. So their debt ratio is now at, at very good levels, uh, which means that their only two options now are to either buy back stock or in increase their distribution. And they've been increasing the distribution a fair amount. They've also been doing a few acquisitions here and there. This is a growth income play. Okay. I like that. I like that. Listen, let's leave it there on this block, guys, because coming up after the break, we have to ask Chuck about earnings season. We got to also talk about what the Fed, if they are going to cut rates, will they do it next year or is it going to be 2025? But we'll get into all of that after the break. So with us today, we have Charles Weaverman. He is the CIO and managing partner of Advisors Capital Management. You can take a look at advisorscapital.com for all Chuck's uh, writings and his commentary. It's excellent stuff, actually. So uh, we'll be right back after the break. Please stay with us. Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together 
through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the u.s have to be american built owned and crewed That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnership's YouTube channel. This is Jessica from Jay Walker Salon Group, and you're watching Tobin and Todd from Buy, Hold, Sell. Welcome back to Buy, Hold, Sell. Well, we saw the markets drop considerably today. The Dow was down 1%. We saw the NASDAQ and S&P. S&P was down one and a third. NASDAQ was up off 1.6. Oil was up big today. Gold was up big today. And what else was up big? The 10-year Treasury yield topping out at a little over 4.9%, the highest we've seen in it, what, since 2007. It's been some time. So, uh, so all eyes right now is what's going on geopolitically and obviously with earnings. And after the bell today, we had Netflix come out. Obviously, they had a big beat. The stock after hours is up in double-digit territory. But Tesla got slammed, and uh, they actually reported $0.66 uh, cents on their EPS versus $0.73, cents what Wall Street was expecting. But with us today, we have Charles Lieberman. He is the CIO and managing partner of Advisors Capital Management. And Chuck, when we left off at the last break, we were talking about some of the some of the stocks that you like in your portfolio. But what about now with earnings season? Because there does seem to be a little bit of a stress here with some of these companies. Morgan Stanley came out and actually disappointed where the other financials did fine. But now we're in tech earnings season. What do you think on the tech side? Because all eyes, you would think we'd see things are actually popping, but I'm not so sure right now. Well, the tech stocks are priced in some cases for perfection or certainly for very, very strong growth. And they're certainly likely to experience strong growth. But, you know, if if it's up 25 percent and the market was expecting a 30 percent pop in earnings, you know, that's disappointing. 
but you can't lose sight of the fact that a 25% pop is a pretty good pop. And these companies are not going to grow uh, slowly over the next couple of years. Plenty of them are going to grow grow right rapidly. Question is, what are they priced for? And that makes uh, that makes it complicated. You really have to get those right. So yeah, we, I, yeah, I um, you know, we 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 have an AI portfolio that's done ridiculously well this year. Uh, I always think about when I was a mutual fund manager coming into the end of October uh, with the October thirty one you know year end that. I would be selling, uh, taking profits in ones that were up. I mean, you know, Nvidia's up uh, 185% for us. You know, in a world where 7% a year returns is normal, that seems a little high. So I'm taking, you know, profits there and then putting them into these high yield deals. And I think part of what we're seeing here are, are the mutual fund managers who are active uh, managers, um, you know, essentially doing some tax swaps at the uh, at this end of this fiscal year. And that's the mechanics of the market. But when you have something up, you know, uh, geez, uh, our MC, SMCI, which makes the the racks that has NVIDIA chips in them for these hyperscalers, that stock was 124 bucks uh, six months ago. It's now 300. Uh, I'm old enough to know that if I got 50 years of gains in six months, that I am going to certainly get at least my original capital back. Then I'm going to get my 100% return of the capital back. And uh, particularly when interest rates are going up. And, and to me, that's what I see more of my uh, cohort people doing. Yeah, I find those stocks extremely difficult to uh, to invest in uh, because while they're doing well, the stocks run up dramatically, as you yeah. saw. And then when something slips even slightly, the market takes them out and shoots them. Uh, and it's a very, very tough investing environment. Um I'm less aggressive perhaps than that. So I'm really more comfortable uh, investing in companies that are I'm confident are going to grow 5, 10, 15% a year on a recurring basis for a very long time. And, you know, that's my cup of tea. Yeah, well, um, let me tell you that that tea's tasting pretty good these days, Chuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, I say I run a growth portfolio and I run an income portfolio and um, I, I just happen to, of sort of be an expert, if you will, in uh, inflection point investing in technology. And I've written a number of books on it and run a mutual fund on it, et cetera. So I'm I'm very tied in. And I have a group of 2000 uh, subject matter experts that have been with me for a decade or more, and they feed me a lot of great stuff. Um, but I, I'm, I'm with you at the point that I, I, to me, I'm in risk reduction mode. And why on earth? I, I couldn't look somebody in the eye who had a 250% profit in SMCI and then it misses one quarter and then it's down 100 you know it's down 50%. To me that's that's imprudent and I think people at home uh, need to and I've been with I have subscribers to our newsletters. I I I, I preach every freaking week that that it, when interest rates are going against you and the economy is slowing et cetera, et cetera, and stocks some of these stocks are four or five times what they were worth 6 months ago. Come on man, take the profit at least get your cost bases out and take, 100%. take some take some money off the table it's take money off the table yeah and, 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 and i sympathize that's your dividends <laughs> i sympathize yeah. for my colleague who runs our growth portfolio because i think she's got a tough uh, uh time to just try to figure out how to play it yeah well it's, it's, it's so a new for world the fourth, for the fourth quarter we had we had a number of strategists that have been on that have been I would say, other than maybe a handful, that most for the most part, everybody's very optimistic for the fourth quarter. What's your take on the markets? I know we have a lot of 
obvious, obvious uh, challenging headwinds with the uh, on the geopolitical front. But with that, with that standing, what do you think for the fourth quarter and then beyond? Because historically, in the fourth quarter of a pre-election year, this should be a rocking quarter for the markets. But where do you stand? Well, I don't see any real risk of a recession near term in the visible future. And that's what rocked the market in 22. uh, And at times has been a concern of the market uh, in 23. But I just don't see it. The economy continues to roll ahead a pretty good clip. Uh, The third quarter uh, looks like it's going to be overly strong, really overly strong. That's a real problem for the Fed. And and that's part of why I'm nervous the Fed may have to come back and raise interest rates some more. So I see the economy continuing to surprise to the upside because there's so much pessimism out there. And as a result, I continue to expect corporate profits to surprise to the upside. So I'm fine with stocks. I think you do have to be very selective. The high P stocks are really the ones most at risk as interest rates rise because so much of their earnings is out in the distant future. And so higher yields uh, cause the valuations of those, the theoretical valuations to fall most. Uh, So I think there's some risk there, but there are a lot of great values in the market. When the overall market is trading at 17, 18 times expected earnings, and you exclude the Magnificent Seven, the 493 are trading at 15, 16 times earnings. So I think there's a lot of value in the market. I I go fishing constantly in the range of 10 to 12 times earnings for 24. And there's a lot of great value there. Are there any particular sectors that you like? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What sectors in that fishing pond are you uh, getting to? So I don't like utilities. I don't like uh, consumer staples. They tend to trade at higher valuations. Uh, I do like a whole bunch of REITs, but you have to be selective. So, uh, for example, uh, uh, towers and uh, computer centers, those have done extremely well. The prices ran up, the multiples surged, the yields declined. Uh, The companies continue to do well, but the the stocks are at risk because of rising rates. Then I love the ones where they threw the baby out with the bathwater. So everyone remembers what happened to the nursing homes during the pandemic. They got crushed uh, and most of them cut their dividends. But guess what? Life is returning to normal. Uh, uh, Occupancy in these nursing homes is rising again. Incrementally, the uh, increased revenue tends to fall to the bottom line. Uh, These companies have a lot of roadway ahead of them. And the stocks are still cheap because everybody got burned in them. So the multiples are low. The yields are high. You can get yields of 7 to 10% in very high quality nursing home type of REITs. Uh, and you've got some insulation from uh, from inflation because they own the real estate. So the, the values go up and all of that. So that's a good area. Uh, another one that I like are uh, oil and gas pipelines. Um, I don't like the upstream ones because they're more vulnerable to rising, uh, to excuse me, falling energy prices, which will happen at some point again. Uh, the stupidity of the market is that when they when oil prices go down, they take the pipelines out and shoot them also. Uh, but I think they're great values, good yields. Uh, you can get a company like Energy Transfer, which is one of the cheapest, one of the best positioned uh, with a yield of about 9%. Uh, and growth in that cash flow and growth in that business over time. 
they're running out of things to use their cash flow, their excess cash flow for. So they're going to have no choice but to continue to increase the distribution or back, buy back stock. So uh, there are lots of opportunities around. Well, okay. And also, you know, there's no question that uh, tell me the last time that we had a major pipeline approved in the United States, Chuck. I, I'm I'm searching my uh, my mind. Um, you have growing oh, every, production, every, and, uh, and you have and you have less pipelines built in the last you know ten years than we've had for the, you know thirty years beforehand. So now they get a scarcity value too, right? They can you know they can charge whatever they want. You know, once those contracts roll over, I look at all the energy transfers uh, contracts and. You know, some of those ones are rolling over here and they ain't going to be at the price they did 10 years ago. No, that's exactly right. Um, the very fact that the administration fights every new pipeline or even every expansion of a pipeline or in some cases threatens to shut down an existing pipeline. Uh, it really makes the value of the existing infrastructure that much greater. And uh, it means that uh, they're going to be able to raise price. And you're exactly right. So I'm really comfortable with a lot of those situations. Uh, one of the, the expectations that I have is there's going to be a, a continued amalgamation of these pipelines as the big ones try to acquire the little ones as another way to spend capital and, and to grow. And that means that all of the smaller ones are at risk of being acquired. And that's a risk I want to take. Yeah, I want to be I want to be on that side, too. Uh, the the actual cost of capital for them uh, also, you know, in theory, with interest rates going up means cost of capital is going down. But in their case, they're able to finance it themselves. Uh, you know, they're not going out. And, and if they're borrowing money, they're borrowing money, you know, for a short period of time. And then they put long term financing on it and they have rates that come out, you know, higher because they're new pipeline. So. Yeah, I'm with you. It's it's a win-win-win. What do you do about the uh, MLPs? Though? What do you do about the K1s for your fund or for your for your funds? Yeah, so we do everything in separately managed accounts, and we've basically uh, bifurcated all of our clients into uh, taxable accounts where we put the K1s and non-taxable accounts where we do only 1099s. And for those clients who don't want to deal with K1s, we classify them internally as uh, K1s excuse me, as, as 1099s, and that way we avoid the problem for them. So uh, we handle it in that way. That's awesome. That's, so, I mean, it's, so it's, at this time of year, this is where I get the, the uh, my uh, managed accounts, um, you know, when they get a, they have, and most of the times they have custody, so they get the, they, they get the K-1s, but I, I'm with you. Um, if you. If you do it that way, then it eliminates that, that, you know, problem. I'm just yeah. also, you know, since you're so deep into this space, I'm wondering why some of them keep the MLP structure. Why wouldn't they just go back to, you know, to being C corps? Do, do does that get on your uh, radar at all? Oh, absolutely. And you've seen a lot of them actually convert from from uh, partnerships into C corps. There are a couple of situations where they should, but they haven't. Uh, perfect example: energy transfer. Kelsey yeah, Warren. I, don't I forgot that they were an MLP. Right. He owns so much of the shares that he doesn't want the tax bill that would come uh, by converting. Uh, and what they're going to do, which is kind of interesting, is they're looking at creating uh, a C Corp version so that they can pay out a 1099 to shareholders, which is exactly what Plains American did. Uh, there's PAA, which continues to pay out a K1, and mm -hmm. PAGP, which pays out a 1099. And I wouldn't be surprised if energy transfer does the same thing. Well, then the other thing, finally, of course, is that pension plans 
can't get K1s. So if you go to the C Corp structure, then you'll, you know, you get access to, I don't know, $16.5 trillion worth of pension money that that loves income and our long-term investors uh who are, you know, should be in these things, right? That's exactly right. All right. So Keep before we talk. close out the before we close out the show, let's pivot back to the Fed. So you're you're talking about a fear of potentially uh more uh more rate hikes by the Fed. Do you see rate cuts anywhere on the horizon? Uh, not on my radar screen, theoretically, of course. Um, the easiest thing th- in the world to do is to forecast the recession. And if you don't provide a date, you know you'll be right eventually uh, because <laughs> the economy goes in cycles. And right. so, yes, there'll be rate cuts, but I don't see it uh, in the first part of uh, 2024. I certainly don't see it in 2023. Um, it's premature to expect it. Uh, we're still trying to bring inflation down until the Fed accomplishes that. There's really no prospect for rate cuts. Are you forecasting a recession for next year? I haven't gone out to the second half of 24. It's possible. Uh, I don't see one in the first half of 24. Uh, I continue to forecast the recession, but beyond my radar screen. It's beyond my range. Um, well, I, I'm sure you. Uh, I'm sure you look at the Atlanta Fed uh, GDP now uh, charts based on the, on their data. We're, we're going to have a recession in like 2035. Uh, right. So I, 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 you know what? They've been they've been right in a lot of ways. Always higher than what it, it is. But but I think more and more people are trying to at least follow that. One of the reasons I can't see a recession is because I'm not doing the simplistic top-down, ignoring the detail that a lot of people do. So if you look at how much the Fed has raised rates, you then jump to the conclusion a recession is inevitable. But when you look at the sectors of the economy, look at the consumer sector. Household debt relative to income, relative to net worth is down sharply. We continue to generate lots of jobs. Wages are rising. The consumer has a lot of capacity to spend, and that's the biggest part of the economy. Then switch over to capital investment. The government is subsidizing green initiatives all over the place, and we need to bring investment onshore. So that provides a tailwind for capital investment. Then go to the housing market. The housing market is really one of the most interesting. The easiest thing to say is that rising interest rates are going to crush housing, as they did in 2022. But the mix is what matters, right? What has happened is because of the rise in mortgage rates, No one wants to sell an existing home on which you already have a low rate mortgage. That forces all of the buyers into the new construction market. And they have to buy there because there's just no inventory. The fact of the matter is, after overbuilding and causing a a financial crisis in 07, 08 into 09, we've now underbuilt by so much that there's a very significant housing shortage. And so one of the great opportunities for investment is everything related to housing, housing construction, parts, uh, equipment, durables that go into houses, into new houses, because that's going to continue to outperform vastly better than people expect. Uh, the even, new- even after the uh, pullback in the in the in the stocks, in the at least in the residential development stocks, so that's a buy. That's an uh, opportunity. Exactly, because there's a shortage in the country. Yeah. Uh, the ballpark estimate is something like a million and a half units or more. And in, to put that in perspective, if you're running a million and a half units, which is what we're doing roughly, 
and you have roughly that much demand because of growth in households, teardowns, and second homes, then you need to get construction above that level to eat into the shortage. And that's going to take years. And so the housing market is actually well poised to do quite well. If interest rates come down even slightly, you're going to see housing take off like a rocket. Yeah, I just just wrote a report today. I I didn't realize, first off, 37% of homes in the United States don't have a mortgage. Uh, 80%, 82% have mortgages that are under 4%. So the idea that- And are fixed for 30 years. And are fixed, right. So- when people you know running around with their head on fire saying oh we're we're, we're going to have this recession because people can't afford to you know make their payments and oh and yeah and you know the uh, you you can't find a repo man to repo the you know those those Ford 150 trucks that some idiot paid $95,000 for in the middle of the freaking pandemic then you got to take the outliers out you know that better than anybody chuck you, data is dirty until you take the outliers out and now you have the core and when I mean, you look at the core you know the 25% of the households that generate 78% of discretionary spending are doing just fine so if you take out the consumer you take out capital investment and you take out housing there's not enough of the economy to react negatively to higher interest rates to cause a recession so I think that a recession is not on the horizon anytime soon. Well, it's okay. good to hear. Todd, I know you got to wrap it up, but uh, Chuck, it's great to get your wisdom and, and level-headedness on this. And I'm, I love meeting a fellow MLP fan. Absolutely. Well, we are going to shut it down right there, guys, because this was fantastic. Chuck, you were, you said it all today and you definitely have the, uh, the, the, the um what, what's the pedigree i should say wall street pedigree easy for you to a- say todd <laughs> well i'll tell you what i mean all those experiences uh definitely um definitely pay off because uh that wisdom is great for the audience so so thank you so much for joining us today chuck and we, we definitely hope to have you back yeah thanks very much for having me todd i appreciate all the kind comments absolutely absolutely so on behalf of charles lieberman who is the CIO, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Partner at Advisors Capital Management. Go to AdvisorsCapital.com to learn what Chuck has to uh, to write about. He definitely has some, some wonderful stuff. I think the wisdom will actually uh, continue on if you go to his site. So so thanks again for joining us. And uh, on behalf of Tobin Smith, I am Todd Schoenberger. We hope to see you again for another Buy, Hold, Sell. Take care. Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.